0: I don't think it's ever been more true than right now during this pandemic, um, and as compounded by um, the, this movement for racial justice, um, that, that, that we should be thinking about the classroom and, and that includes the virtual classroom as a community. The classroom is a community. Um, and, and in many ways, for right now, more than ever, this might be the only community sense of community that our some of our students might be experiencing, right? And so it's all the more imperative for us to be able to create a space in which we are willing to take the time to be humans and to learn something about who one another are, what we're bringing to, to this to this learning space, uh, and what the opportunities for inquiry and exploration and how do we connect. The the content, the conversations that we're having around the content, to our experience, and how do we elevate the value of that? Um, uh, and make in order for uh, us to be able to make meaning, right, uh, of the connection between the content and our experiences and trajectories.
1: Hello, and welcome to Ingenious You the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading-edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious You, we will talk with leading edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious U is a production of CHELIP, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about CHELIP, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash academics and select Centers of Excellence.
2: Everyone. This is Melissa Morris Olson, and I am your host for this episode of Ingenious You. I am so pleased to have as our guest today Dr. Amer Ahmed, an organizational strategist, and I might add, also a good friend, uh, Dr. Ahmed. <laughs> helps institutions and leaders address diversity and inclusion, equity, and intercultural development through consulting, coaching, group facilitation, and keynote speeches. He is a frequently requested speaker nationwide. In fact, I just learned that he is keynoting the National Conference on Race and Ethnicity 2020, which is going to be held virtually next week. So we may come back and ask him about that. Dr. Ahmed's approach is grounded in a commitment to inclusive excellence in organizations and communities. He brings his identity as the son of Indian Muslim immigrant parents and extensive years as an intercultural and diversity consultant, as the source of a transformational understanding of the depth of diversity and inclusion work. Throughout his career, he's worked with large organizations, many, many higher ed institutions, nonprofit agencies, schools, community groups, to create understanding and change among key constituents and institutional leaders. He's published key opinion pieces and has been featured in media such as MSNBC, documentary film, and other national press outlets for his commentary and critical perspective on news and significant topics in society. Amir, welcome to our podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Melissa
2: given all that is happening right now with the racial tensions in our country, I imagine you are in demand more than ever. And I, well, I'll let you, I'll let you respond to that before I go on.
0: Well, it's definitely a, you know, a busy time and, 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 and moment. And, you know, it's a, it's complicated. I mean, everything is compounded by the pandemic and, you know because you know a, a large portion of my work is with higher education you know so many institutions are just trying to figure out how to be open <laughs> this mm-hmm. fall um, so you know and people are dealing with budgetary matters while at the same time folks really wanting to advance this work um, um, right now as well so I think there's a, there's a lot of conversations going on about how how do we do this given like all the, the balls that we're juggling right now.
2: Mm, for sure. Well, I'm very grateful for your time with us today and for the wisdom that I know you're going to share uh, with our listeners. Um, just full disclosure, you uh, were a consultant uh, for us at Bay Path University at the very start of our diversity and inclusion work a few years ago. And so I know from firsthand experience just how impactful uh, your uh, consulting and advisory work is in this regard. So, yeah. oh, go, go ahead.
0: Oh no, just that you know, it was a it was a great experience, and uh, you know, I I I trumpet the success that Bay Path uh, accomplished uh, all over the country uh, it was just really really impressive.
2: Mm. Well, it's good to it's good to hear that. Although, as you and I both know. Uh, diversity work never ends (laughs) right and it's a work in a work in progress so let me start by asking you how it is that you entered into this work in the first place as I mentioned you were born and you were raised in middle America in Mm -hmm. Ohio in Ohio specifically right
0: yeah yeah
2: to, to Indian Muslim immigrant parents so how did your early experiences shape who you became and the work you're doing today?
0: Yeah, I, I, a lot of it was shaped by not being black or white in, in an environment in which almost everybody was either black or white American, and that kind of in betweenness that that is different than if you're biracial, where you're of the other groups, but um, but you know being of another group but not being white or black, and negotiating all of that um you know and uh, you know for me that what that wasn't something that was valuable to me uh growing up i thought that was what made me different or weird or strange especially because that was communicated and conveyed quite a bit um but you know as i got older i realized that i had a lens and a perspective that might have been a little bit different from other people particularly as i came into the work um certainly when I was younger, it was just about curiosity. Um, it was about being from an immigrant family. And oftentimes in, in families like mine, there isn't a lot of historical context about why things are the way they are in this country. You know, uh, A lot of times when immigrant families come to the United States, they're focused on establishing themselves and creating opportunities and Uh, And not necessarily steeping themselves in the entire historical context, particularly around race relations. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, but, you know, there is a negotiation. I mean, there were definitely clear messages about like, you know, um, don't bring attention to yourself. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about anything controversial be um be mindful and uh, of the police and and avoid them at all costs you know there was definitely like um uh, ways in which they negotiated it um but but you know a lot of uh a lot of dynamics that I didn't understand I didn't understand why I was seeing certain kinds of dynamics and encounters especially between white and, and black people and and I wanted to understand it more
2: mm. Boy, well, and I, I can only ima- imagine in the lens that you must uh, have in terms of what's happening in America right now. Um, you know, as as we know, virtually overnight, the George Floyd incident mm. has gotten the attention of people from all over the world, mm-hmm. and yet racism is anything but new in our mm-hmm. country and in our institutions. I I'm wondering, how do you make sense of the fact that this has, this moment of time has captured... The attention of so many people.
0: Yeah. Well, um, if I connected to kind of that growing up in Ohio, uh, you know, Ohio in many ways um, was viewed as the promised land in terms of the place in which the great, in the great migration, so many black people from the South um, escaped to. um, uh, And so many families were part of the, had. Uh, sellers from the Underground Railroad in their in their home, and there was a sense in places like Ohio in the North that we're not the racist ones. <laughs> the the, mm-hmm. the racist ones are the ones in the South, and um, this is the place in which people came to for freedom. Um, yet it was very clear the stratification in in my town, and you know, some, my town was like so many towns in the Midwest are all mini Chicago's, South Side, North Side. You know, and the south side is probably black, and north side is probably white. So, so, and what I would learned over time was just the degree of denial uh, around racism that exists in white America. Um, and you know this, you know the the depth of kind of the pull you're up by your bootstraps, and actually the use of immigrant families like mine as the example, as, as kind of to pit against black people to to say that you see like. You know immigrant families like yours they come here and they do they they do well and they advance and they work hard and you know and, and in some ways it's just to to rationalize and justify their own existing worldview about black people and um and then uh, you know as you know i moved to the northeast and and then i learned of a whole different depth of white denial that's even um even different from uh from ohio and so I think throughout the entire my entire journey through this work i've been very clear that the major obstacle around racism in this country is primarily around the level of acknowledgement um of the reality of racism in this country by white america and and I speak of that um, uh, as as a as not as a monolith but but it, just in terms of a um a collective of people who are positioned in relationship to a system of of oppression um, that we call racism that oftentimes are are very unaware of the way that system functions and operates. And oftentimes are unaware of their own levels of bias um, uh, and discrimination that they hold. And and again, when you're positioned like me, you know, a lot of times I was used as a proxy by white Americans that oh, if I'm friends with somebody like Amir, then that means I'm not racist. And therefore I justifies my attitudes about black people. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think the other dimension of your question is the global kind of reaction and response.
2: Yes. uh And
0: and me, as you know, I've been engaged in trying to bridge this conversation around the way in which we talk about social justice, education, and, and equity and inclusion here in the United States. With a more global conversation, and in higher education in particular, that conversation has not had a social justice focus. Um, but for myself, as a family who comes from a minoritized population in India that that is severely, especially right now, um, severely marginalized within India. You know, I recognize myself uh, as part of uh, a people that have been colonized, uh, and that's not something I fully understood growing up. But it's some, certainly something I understand now, and. The one thing I'm clear about is that many people around the world who are from these various colonized populations identify with the different struggles that they see other people experiencing in the world. And the the one experience that has been on display for the world, especially through American mass media that has been exported globally, is the experiences of Black people in in America. And that some of that has been complicated. some of it's um, misinformed because of the, the way representation looks uh, and the appearance of wealth um, uh, that might feel strange to someone who might not have access to a lot of resources in Africa or something like that. But at the same time, the more people learn about the experience of Black people, the more they listen to. Uh, hip-hop and other kinds of messaging coming from Black America about their experiences, the more that people identify with it, the more people can compare it and see that reminds me of the way I experienced the world as a Palestinian or as a as a uh, Algerian uh, or Moroccan French person, or uh, or so forth and so on. And so for me, it wasn't surprising to see the global response. It wasn't surprising for me to see Maori people in New Zealand doing the haka in the name of Black lives. But I understand that because of the insular and kind of inward focus that we have in the United States and our kind of disconnect from so many of those realities, you know, there wasn't a, a recognition of how many people in the world look at the United States, particularly with regards to um, the struggles of Black Americans,
2: for sure. Well, and that that certainly uh, has changed, at least for the moment, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I,
2: yeah. And I'm I'm going to ask you a question. I don't. This may not be a fair question, and mm-hmm. and you may not have even um, gotten your head around it yet. But I'm I'm curious, given your background and your perspective, and what you're seeing and what you just shared. Is there anything in this that gives you hope, in terms oh, of yeah. the, the state of race relations in our country, in America specifically?
0: Without question, and so this this is part of the reason why I really wanted to make emphasize the point that this is an awakening of white America <laughs> more than anything else. I mean, this I mean, I'm it, it is broader than that, yes, but I mean, the difference what what makes this moment different broadly is the awakening of white America and the the overt acknowledgement and recognition of racial inequity and racism, Mm -hmm. um, particularly with regards to black Americans who white America has been uh, broadly, has been quite steeped in narrative of denying um, for various reasons. That's what makes this moment different. And actually I shared um, a post with a a bunch of colleagues um, um, in intercultural work, who, which is a, um, uh, very white field relatively, much more so than, than it should be, and, um, and I let them know that there was, uh, back in 2013, I was at a, a, a uh, an institute that was being held, and it was being held in Portland, Oregon, which is the lar- largest white city in America, um, and, um, or it's the whitest large city in America, actually, and, and I was there the day the acquittal of George Zimmerman happened as related to Trayvon Martin and, and the murder of Trayvon Martin. And, and I was devastated. I was so hurt and angry and upset. And at that time I lived in Southeast Michigan and, you know, and I watched as I walked around Portland, looking around at at all these white people and seeing nobody really caring or Or talking about it, or like, I mean, I was just flabbergasted, you know, because if I had been home, I would have been in Detroit at a protest, you know. And um, I think that there has been this exhaustion that has set in with so many people um, over time of like, what is it going to take to get white people to wake up? Um, And so, what I shared with some colleagues the other day was that the way they feel about George Floyd is the way I felt about Trayvon Martin, you know, and 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 it, even at that time, it probably wasn't as surprising to me as this is for so much of white America, you know, because I was somebody who was already well, very well versed in, um, in these realities in the United States, even prior to that. I just had hoped that at least in this case, this man would be held accountable, and he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, for me, although there's been a lot of, you know, like for many people, a lot of emotions and pain and, and um, working through a lot, um, honestly, I, I view it as more of a watershed moment, and I view it as more of an opportunity for us to do real work in the country. And those of us who've been steeped in, and invested and committed to creating change um, around these issues, uh, I feel like in many ways we are prepared. We're prepared to engage and and, and it's not going to be easy. It's not, it's going to be quite hard, but we are prepared to engage that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't want to speak on behalf of other people. I feel prepared and I feel focused and I feel it's really about me just doing the inner self-work to make sure I'm in as healed of a place as I can about my experience to be able to bring what my skill set and what my expertise and my background is to the table, and I feel like there's other people in the work um, who I feel confident are going to bring a tremendous amount of insight and and, and skill and and perspective to uh, the conversation going forward.
2: Mm. Well, and you you're really leading us into the next question I had, mm-hmm. which has to do with um, colleges, bringing it down to the level of colleges and universities, and you've worked with dozens. Mm-hmm. Our colleges around the country. And one of the things that has been so um, encouraging to me is seeing uh, our, the younger generation, the generation mm-hmm. of, of um, students, students who are in college, the 18 to 22, the young, you know, mid 20s, mm-hmm. uh, who are becoming um, overt activists in the mm-hmm. middle of this this has seemed to connect with their, their sense of social justice. And I, again, I don't wanna stereotype, but I, I've just been struck and also encouraged by how many uh, college age students I've seen rising to the occasion. And, and so um, here's my question. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you have worked so closely with college students, college age students, college administrators, faculty, in helping them develop and implement plans around diversity and inclusion. I'm, I'm wondering what you have found to be the most important ingredients to make the work stick and to be sustainable. Because as, as you and I both know, um, in a moment like this, there is always a rush to do something.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Many institutions go down the path of, well, let's just do something and let's put it on our website and let's tell the world that we're <laughs> serious about diversity and inclusion. And yet I, I have learned from you that making the work stick mm-hmm. um, is something altogether different. Um, so do you have any, any uh, stories that you can share uh, or specific suggestions to you know, an institutional leader? Um, who is embarking on this path right
0: Yeah. Now. Well, f- first, we do need to reflect on the last few years of higher education in terms of um, a, a few years of, of student activism that has been going on on our campuses around the country and the ways in which their voices were marginalized in those conversations and the ways in which, well, they just don't understand right they they just don't really understand um, uh, X y and Z and and, and the, the thing is that um, I've been inspired by this generation because my generation growing up was very apathetic I feel safe to say in the late 90s that, um, relatively. I, I just, you know, and, and I watched different generations of students that I worked with on campuses that I worked at, um, and on different campuses around the country. And, I, and I've watched this increasing consciousness that um, has been cultivated and the the shift to action amongst these young people. And I, I would say that it kind of started on campuses in the sense that, like, you know, trying to create change on campuses and, I had always my main critique about that was that I felt like a lot of the conversations on our campuses fell into an unintentional replication of elitism of like campus social justice, um, intellectualism. And what what I value the most about what I see happening now is it is connected to what's happening in community. And what's happening probably for a lot of our students, and I think what I hope senior administrators are paying attention, is that there's a lot to learn from our communities, from the people in our communities, in our surrounding communities who are living the real struggles of daily life every single day, who may be struggling to get access to our institutions in the first place, uh, and the opportunities that we try to promise and support and invest in, in students around. Um, and that people have the capacity to process and understand their own reality and, and and develop solutions. And so it requires a level of listening as opposed to talking at. And I think in higher education, we're really good at talking at people and, and telling people what we think we know. Right. And what we don't do as, very, as well is listening. And sometimes I think we teach our students to do the same thing. Um, and what I'm hoping from this entire process, more than anything, is the deep and profound listening um, that, that is required because there has been a yearning for freedom and liberation that is not new, right? That is deeply embedded in the history of oppression in this country uh, and, that it, and that it requires, uh, and we talk about this in ally work all the time, standing with and not for people, right? And this assumption that we know what's best for other people, right? We don't know. And that's been part of the assumption around higher education, that what's better for people is to get higher education in a particular way, in the way in which we tell them that it needs to happen, as opposed to what can higher education provide for you that is empoweringful, empowering and meaningful for you and what's what makes meaning and what is transformational for you. And that might mean going back to your community and, and transforming it. How do we enable that? How do we better support you and understand your experience to be able to empower you to be able and give you tools that can empower you to do that?
2: So you're, you're suggesting that leaders, administrators, whoever's doing this work on the campus needs to start by, by listening and putting, putting their own opinions to the side.
0: Yeah. Um, and to do that, we have to grapple with the history of higher education, a history yeah. of white patriarchy, a history of people thinking that they know better than other people. Right. And, and yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say that requires a level of humility as yes. well, and vulnerability that is not always baked in uh, with new leaders. Right. Because there, there is there is an expectation that you're going to be strong and you're going to know what to do. And you're flipping that on its head and suggest yeah. that it, that being effective with the work of diversity and inclusion requires a very different approach.
0: Yeah, I mean, for so many of us, when we go into higher education, we feel like we have to contort ourselves into these ways of knowing and being in the world uh, in order to be deemed acceptable and then for what that deemed intelligent. And so there's this in the in the academy, there's this culture of knowing or the performance of knowing. That's where all the incentives are. All the incentives are around knowing or the performance of knowing. There's not a lot of incentives around not knowing right? And and, um, and if you think about the tr- cultural traditions and histories and trajectories of, of many of the uh, historically ma- marginalized communities that, that are now represented on so many of our campuses, they're bringing traditions that have elevated the value for other ways of knowing other than intellectualism, right? Mm-hmm. Other than the, 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 the intellectual knowing that there's that there's other ways of knowing that involve a level of humility, involve the, the idea that um, we are not uh, uh, fully in control. We are not keepers of all knowledge and truth. And so we have to be open to the possibilities of g- gaining a deeper understanding of, of reality in order to be able to translate that into meaningful, in uh, and, and my hope, in meaningful change. Because mm. you know, I think that higher education is a public good and so therefore it should be about some kind of praxis, something that translates into to meaningful actions towards change
2: mm-hmm. no and you know i resonate with absolutely everything you're saying but l- having lived in in coll- you know in the culture of a college or university i also know how hard it is because you've got this counterculture
0: mm-hmm.
2: at odds with with what you're saying now now let me let me ask you to drill down just a little bit more deeply mm-hmm. because particularly on a campus that enrolls a lot of commuting students. The classroom experience is where the student is oftentimes most impacted. And the interaction with the faculty member and the way in which the faculty member conducts the class and interacts with students and and so on. Do you have some thoughts about how faculty, well, first of all, what role they play or they should play? Uh, in what we're talking about and, and how they might best facilitate an interculturally supportive and inclusive kind of learning experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it's ever been more true than right now during this pandemic um, and as compounded by um, the, this movement for racial justice. Um, that 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 we should be thinking about the classroom and, and that includes a virtual classroom as a community, the classroom is a community. Um, and, and in many ways, for right now, more than ever, this might be the only community sense of community that our, some of our students might be experiencing, right? And so it's all the more imperative for us to be able to create a space in which we are willing to take the time to be humans and to learn something about who one another are, what we're bringing to, to this, to this learning space, uh, and what the opportunities for inquiry and exploration, and how do we connect the, the, the content, the conversations that we're having around the content to our experience, and how do we elevate the value of that um, uh, and make in order for uh, us to be able to make meaning, right, uh, of the connection between the content and our experiences and trajectories, um, and, and, and I think, right right now that is that opportunity is tremendous because we have the ultimate case study there is no discipline there is no area of study that is not touched by what's happening in our world right now at the very least from the pandemic right and so the ability to be able to create that connection between um what we're trying to learn about with what students are experiencing and what they're trying to process about what's happening in the world and and having some conversations about that and that positions the faculty member as a co-learner in the process you know with with experience with background with some expertise to bring to the table of course and again what is it that i i do not know there are things that our students are bringing in uh, into the to that space that we might not we likely aren't very familiar with Great. How do we help? How do we support them in making that connection between their life experience and and what we're talking about in order to be able to translate that into something meaningful in their lives?
2: Mm, Boy, that's an important, important point. You know, I'm thinking about this spring and everything we learned and we're still in the process of learning about our students at Bay Path. Mm -hmm. uh, because of the impact that the pandemic has had on them and their families. You know, one, one point, I was gonna say it's a small point, but it's not a small point, is uh, I was surprised by how many of our students uh, live and experience uh, hunger issues mm-hmm. in their family and yeah. that the campus was a safe space for them. But then having been sent back home, this was an issue that became very real um, and it, it was something they brought into their, uh, their interactions with faculty and, you know, our faculty who are so incredibly supportive and uh, brought it forward, in fact, and, and said, what can we as a campus do to address this? Um, so I think you are right, right on the money. You know, that being said, again, this is not this is not how faculty are necessarily socialized or taught Mm -hmm. in terms of how to teach. And so this whole notion that you lead with your humanity as a faculty member and um, that you, you, again, turn the learning experience on its head so you're using the student's experience as a focus for for the learning. Yeah, I mean,
0: the the reality is that most faculty aren't taught how to teach. (laughs) yeah <laughs> uh, no, I mean, true. and so by default, w- where we go to is teaching the way we were taught. Mm-hmm. And so in the absence of an intentional effort to shift that dynamic, um, and we have to have really profound conversations in in the academy about how we actually do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know at BayPath that's um, uh, it, there's more possibilities for that uh, because there isn't that culture of tenure but especially with institutions with tenure, how do we create mechanisms where faculty actually want to learn how to teach in a different way and not just be researchers and content experts?
2: You have the experience. You've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation status behind with Baypath University. Our innovative doctorate of education in higher ed leadership and organizational studies, ABD degree completion program, makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one of a kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu slash E-D-D. That's baypath.edu slash E-D-D. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. One of the other things I've heard you talk about is the importance of understanding our own identity in relationship to others as we address inequity challenges. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean
0: by the role of identity? Yeah, I mean, I, I think especially within this climate of, of uh, rising consciousness around racial justice, I think it's really important to talk about that as related to white Americans um, and the. I think for many people uh, who uh, are white in this country, there there's not been a lot of time spent on what does it mean to be white? <laughs> and what, does I, what do I come from? What do I, vet? you know, um, I think we've talked about this before that, you know, I've been fortunate to have been many places in the world and, and I've never met anyone from anywhere else in the world that says that they don't have a culture except for white Americans. Uh, or maybe, maybe white Canadians, but, but I, outside of North America, I've never seen it. I've never seen that. And I always thought that was, was very strange to me because for me, I was very clearly given a culture and a tradition and a background that, and this is, this is who we are and this is what we come from. And these are the values that underpin that. And this is what it means to us. And this is what makes us different from other people. And the thing, the challenge is that we had this process in the United States of assimilation into whiteness in which Europeans did not think of themselves as white. They thought of themselves as German and Italian and Irish and and so forth. And And there was this social pressure and it's a long conversation around assimilating into this notion of whiteness, which in many ways, uh, and, and this is a subtext of this whole conversation, in many ways is an assimilation into not just Anglo kind of ways of operating, but it's an assimilation into capitalism and, and in which capitalism kind of replaces culture and therefore re- replaces that which has meaning and value and, tra- um, and that which is sacred for us and, and passed down as traditions. And, and so that creates like an unrootedness for so many white Americans um, who really don't have that kind of anchor of like, who am I? And that's also what translates into cultural appropriation of like trying to uh, uh, kind of seeing somebody like me or seeing a black American and wanting that thing that they see that's there in that other person and feeling that void. Right. Right. And and the the answer to that, the only answer to that is that self-exploration, that understanding. Okay, because for me, my response when people would say, I don't have a culture, I wish I had one like you do. I was, I'd be like, because I heard that all the time growing up in Ohio. That was something I heard from white America. I thought it was the weirdest thing. I, (laughs) my, my response always was you do have a culture. I see it every day. Like, like, like you got to figure out what that is for you. Like what, what were the things that you did in your family? What was passed down to you? What was, what were the values? Where did it come from? Why did you do the things that you do? And how does that shape who you've become? Right. And then once you have that sense of that, that allows you to compare and contrast who you are in relationship to everybody else. Because for me, when I interact with people of different backgrounds, I'm like, OK, this I can see how, OK, it's kind of like this for you. That's kind of similar to the way we do things, but it's a little bit different in this way. But, you know, I can kind of see where that comes from and or I can kind of relate to it in certain way. Like it's constantly that dance, you know, of like, OK, I can kind of. And my sense from a lot of white Americans is that they don't have that reference point to do that. And it becomes very difficult to understand who other people are, where they come from, what they value, why it's so important to them, you know? Mm. And that's part of why there isn't a recognition of why cultural appropriation is such a big deal to people. Like, right. why, why are you trying to take what I have? Like, why don't you, you know, why don't you do your, I'm not against cultural exchange, but when, you know, you want to, do yoga, but you're not really invested in the struggles of South Asian people, or you want to engage in Black culture, but you're not really committed to racial justice and uh, and uh, in addressing anti-Blackness, well, that means you're just taking the thing that you want, but you're not really, you don't really care about the actual people that are, that are from the thing that you want, you know? And so that to me is absolutely core, absolutely core for us to be able to create uh, some kind of change. Um, is that that understanding of self so that we can deepen a sense of empathy and we can because I think the number one thing that shifted a few weeks ago was this this recognition oh this what black people have been saying this whole time is actually true <laughs> and black people are like yeah, we know we've been saying it forever right um, And so if we have, Uh, educational environments that is constantly telling you that who you are isn't really valid, isn't really true, and our expectation is for you to assimilate into what we deem to be acceptable. Well, how am I supposed to see myself as uh, within this as something that's nourishing, something that's empowering, something that's actually positioning me to do something profoundly meaningful to me in my life? You know, or is this simply just an assimilation process to disconnect me from the very place in which I, I come from and therefore what I value, what I care about, what's important to me?
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure. So when you're working on a college campus, then I, I imagine that uh, you start with that work around identity, uh, whether it's with students, mm-hmm. faculty, if you're brought in, is that, is that, again, a yeah. of points yeah. or starting? places
0: that's definitely been the starting place for you know I definitely think so you know you know this that I I've not my intervention strategy my entry point has not been anti-racism it was early in my career um, but I found so much resistance from white people around it Um, and the reason I mean there's multiple reasons why I started in around this identity work Um, but part of it was to is that you don't necessarily hit the same, um, issues of white fragility and defensiveness, um, when you, when you enter from that place. Um, I think there's a whole set of people now that suddenly that you can engage around white, uh, white people that you can engage around anti-racism that are more ready to hear that than they were four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, at, at the same time, I'm still wary about, you know, how how lasting is that? Um, how sustainable is that approach um, in relationship to this new environment? Is, you know, I still and I still think what doesn't change is the idea, the need to identify, uh, understand self yeah. Um, yeah. in order to really have that deep empathy. Um, and the ex- example I give a lot of times is that. Um, native american burial grounds some you know white people sometimes get really upset when you know some construction project has to stop because native artifacts are found and so my response to that is well how would you feel if we built a walmart on your grandparents grave you probably wouldn't like that very much because it's sacred to you Right. And so when you start to understand how deeply important some of these things are to people and how one would feel violated when somebody would just come along and just poo poo and dismiss it or like whatever. Why is this so important to you? Right. That comes from a place of a lack of, of empathy. And that empathy is cultivated from a self-awareness of like mm-hmm. these are the things that are important to me. And even if those things aren't the same for you, I can see why that means so much to you.
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's a, very powerful, um, a, a very powerful notion and makes all the sense in the world in terms of what you're talking about. Let, let, let's switch gears and, and talk about what effective 21st century higher ed leadership might look like in this context. And I, I think, again, you have a unique perspective on this. So in this day and age, what uh, what does an interculturally effective leader look like what what do they do how do they act uh, you, what are your thoughts on that
0: yeah I mean I, I going back to that that humility that you talked about it's it's that it's you know leadership historically in this country has been framed as hierarchical and positional it's the person at the top of the food chain um, and again that's very white patriarchal kind of notion of of leadership. And, and I think for many, you know, cultures and traditions, leadership is more decentralized in its notion that, it's, um, and I, I would say, honestly, the pandemic has revealed um, deeply how we don't value the leadership of some of the most important work that is done, right? That now we we understand that um, uh, people who work at grocery stores, people who grow our food, people who make sure it's transported that those people are essential workers, right? That my entire ability to function in this world is dependent on someone else demonstrating their leadership and what they do, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's a more decentralized notion of leadership. Everybody is a leader in their role. And so therefore, if I'm in a if I happen to be at a higher level of a of a hierarchy or bureaucracy, valuing the contribution of what all these different people bring to the table, wanting to hear their perspectives, um, their, their contributions and being open to the fact that, you know, I, I gotta be able to work with all different kinds of people and everybody needs to learn how to do that because we have so many different kinds of people of, from different trajectories. Um, and we have to be able to work with, with all different kinds of people and we have to prepare our students to step out into a world where they're gonna have to work with all different kinds of people not just the the diverse landscape of the united states but globally and we can do that from our desk like we literally don't even need to move our bodies to need to to have to be able to engage all different kinds of people of all different kinds of trajectories and the reality is that we can't know everything about everybody Right. So we have to start from self. We have to start from those core skills and core competencies that position us to be more likely to be successful in our encounters. Uh, and that translates into, into better results. And so we have to be adaptive. And but again, as soon as we shut off a certain perspective and say, well, that's not valid. that We don't want to hear that because it makes me uncomfortable. Well, that's the reason why it took the George Floyd death for uh, for white America to wake up, because it was a, a massive massive blind spot of an unwillingness to hear a perspective or experience or background. Mm.
2: So so the most effective intercultural leader is going to be somebody with a fairly well developed self sense of self se- sense of identity somebody who is empathetic empathetic
0: uh, adaptive
2: adaptive okay yeah
0: people who can adapt to lots of different contexts and situations and environments in order to be so for me you know I always had to do that the moment I stepped out of my house growing up I was adapting my communication style I was adapting the way in which I engaged if I was with white Mm -hmm. folks if I was with black folks Mm -hmm. I was with the South Asian Muslim community you know, so for me, it just, it's natural. It's something that I've always done. And what I learned, especially when you're from a dominant culture, um, that, you, you, that you might not have had to do that very much. Right. right. And at the same, and
2: yeah. you assume, you assume that the adapting is being done by others.
0: Right. And that's part of what's frustrating around intercultural leadership work for many uh, students of color that I've done with. They're like, wait a minute, this, this adaptation, it's frustrating because I'm the one that's always having to adapt and you know, they don't have to adapt at all. And, and so a lot of the work for me with, with students has been like, yeah, but that's a skill, right? That's a skill that they don't know how to do. So how, how do you build on that? Because you might have been doing it with the dominant culture, but you need to be able to use those very skills to be able to work with all different kinds of people now. So how do you build that up? And then for white folks, how do you learn how to do it at all? Right. How do we how do and part of that is accounting for your privilege, accounting for the fact that, oh, everybody's this is something a lot of white people don't realize that everybody's adapting and bending to them in all these environments and situations. Right. Mm -hmm. And and they don't even recognize they're doing it because there's a whole system behind the the backs that backs that. And Mm -hmm. so of realizing, oh, if we're going to be able to get to a different if I'm going to be able to get to a different level in my leadership, I really need to learn how to do that. Uh, to be because that's how we harness the most innovation and creativity and the greatest ideas so there's that there's that both and element to this there's the because it's the the moral argument because it's the right thing to do and there's the business case because we get better results when we actually harness all these different perspectives and a concrete thing for a corporation is to think about all those PR disasters that have existed over the years. Uh, when you know when they unveil a product or do a commercial and it pisses off a particular community or group, and a lot of times we ask, "Well, who was in the room? Like, how did they look at this and and put out this um, whatever from Gucci or you know the right. the you know the turban that well, the white guy wearing the turban uh, or whatever." There's all these different examples, the shackles uh, on the sneakers that got put up. And and people are like, well, who's in the room? That's the diversity question. That's Mm -hmm. not enough. Mm -hmm. The question is not who's in the room. The question is, have you created an environment so that who is in the room feels empowered to bring their perspectives forward for that to be accounted for? And then do you adapt accordingly? If somebody says, hey, this could be a problem if we for this X, Y, and Z group or community, you know, in my experience, I think we should really think about what before we put this out to the public, is that going to be listened to? Or is that person going to be marginalized and told, oh, this person's just a troublemaker? They're always the naysayer. They're always the X, Y, and Z, as opposed to, no, I need that perspective. That perspective is incredibly valuable for us to be able to proceed forward.
2: Mm, Absolutely. And I I think you've just you've just uh, outlined uh, the the profile for the leader of today and tomorrow, um, the kind of leader needed now more than ever, particularly in our college and university settings where we're bringing up the next generations and hopefully Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully developing in our students these attributes
0: yeah Uh, and the piece of that that connects to what we talked about earlier is that deep listening
2: exactly you know yeah yeah um let let me i i don't want to end this interview without uh asking you to go just a little bit deeper in terms of your own experience and background and Mm -hmm. and you and i have talked about the post nine eleven era in the u.s um and uh, what that triggered in terms of the significant prejudice and bigotry towards Muslim people that mm-hmm. we've seen, or those perceived as Muslim. I know you have personally had to navigate um, tough challenges in terms of Islam phobia. Um, and that really raises the, the broader question about acts of hate, bias, discrimination that we have seen increasingly on college campuses, and so uh, I, my my question is this: As a community, I think it's pretty obvious that such acts undermine the sense of inclusion that various members may feel. But but what can people proactively do about it?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, go, go ahead.
0: So there's you know so there's you know as you mentioned there's this experience that my community and. And others who are perceived as Muslim experience uh, since 9 11 and, um, and uh, yeah, more subject to profiling, to, to hate bias incidences and so forth. And this is where I think more specific knowledge is, is warranted. So we've been talking about some of the core skills. And, and I, what I don't think we should do is just learn about a particular kind of ism or a particular kind of, um, Inequity um, in replacement of those core skills, but those core skills supplemented by learning about specific the experiences of specific communities, whether it's anti-blackness, whether it's Islamophobia, whether it's um, uh, Homophobia, uh, transphobia, and so forth. These we learn about these things so that we recognize the, um, the issues as they emerge. Will we recognize the microaggression? When, when we're able to intervene and be uh, as, a, as a bystander into situations in order to be able to address it. Um, and so that's part of why we need that, um, that type of learning as well for us to be able to create a community that holds different people accountable uh, for different kinds of behavior that's marginalizing. At the same time, I think we're in this bigger conversation right now um, around accountability. What does accountability look like? You know, I, in this conversation about police and uh, defunding the police and so forth and so on, I, I think you know we have not had a good uh, uh, idea in this conversation around in this country about how do we hold people accountable for violating or disrespecting someone else in our community. Right. And I think too often we want to have this punitive at, uh, approach and uh, as opposed to how do we restore the harm that has occurred. Right. How do we find ways to heal and to learn and to grow? And it doesn't minimize what has occurred, but it also creates an opportunity for a new path forward in uh, in order to be able to, to make the community whole again and for us to go forward and not simply think that the answer is just sending someone off to leper island you know and thinking that that's you know that you know that and that in many ways is what the cancel culture has become is that we're just going to cancel this person and does that mean that the harm that that person may have caused um isn't incredibly hurtful problematic or challenging absolutely and who you know Are, is there anybody that's perfect? You know, I I don't want to be held accountable to the worst things that I've ever done or the, you know, or the biggest missteps I've ever made. You know, I I want to be held accountable but I don't want that to dictate my entire future, right? So so how do we find ways um, to be able to uh, take acts that are harmful and translate that into processes of accountability and restoring harm. And, and, and so I think that to me is a big question for our campuses, because I think our campuses can be incubators for how we think about that in our society. But right now, when people are talking, when, when it got announced that the, Minneapolis, the city of Minneapolis was disbanding the police for a, a new approach to public safety, like that just sounded like absolutely bat crazy to to most people you know because they're like wait a minute like how how can society function without police and how we've understood it right and it's like well maybe there's a different approach maybe there's a different way and I think our campuses can be a place in which we can create models of examples uh, of, of how we can do that
2: yeah, I, oh, I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly. Um, I think if your philosophy as an educator is that you look for learning moments everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are in fact learning moments in this context. Um, and you're absolutely right. The campus is a great setting to be an incubator with appropriate leadership and framing um, of how to, how to understand and how to respond and approach these kinds of, these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me end with uh, what we call our signature question. We ask this of every guest who comes on the podcast, and I know you're going to have a good opinion about this. So um, (laughs) the question, the question is this, what do you see ahead for higher education? that we all need to be paying more attention to. From your perspective, what needs to be on our radar and why?
0: Well, I, so I would say two things. One is this relationship between the local and global and equity and social justice issues, um, uh, not just locally, but globally as well. How do we how do we connect uh, what's happening in our world in a globalized world, in a globally interconnected world how do we make the connection between fighting for racial justice and and, um, and uh, addressing anti blackness in the United States, and how do we connect that to uh, inequities that are happening around the world, including those that we are perpetuating as Americans who may be consuming products that are exploiting labor somewhere in the world, or you know, uh, you know, we need to be able to make the connections, and I think the connection to that is the second part of my piece is that we have to be able to question capitalism in, in, in American higher education. Um, because I think in recent years, we have gone down this path of neoliberal uh, capitalism in which global uh, corporate kind of interests are are framed as the end-all be-all without questioning what is the public good. And I think even within higher education, we've seen this dynamic in which um, education is becoming increasingly less accessible financially, it's becoming a, 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 almost a luxury commodity at this point, um, while also being this necessity um, that has never been more important in, in, in than it is right now. And so, how, so there, there's a public policy question too of how do we advocate, like as a as a uh, profession of higher ed collectively and recognizing that higher ed is a public good. We need it to be subsidized properly. Should we tighten our belts where we need to? Yes. But, but how do we make this uh, opportunity accessible for people in order to address these really big equity questions, both here uh, domestically as well as in our world?
2: Wow. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I have to bring you back to finish this discussion. <laughs> this that could be Yeah, that, that was big. Part, that could be part 2 and it it uh, it's big. Those are big, but but so uh so timely and important. So um uh, you have not disappointed. This has been a great conversation and uh, before we sign off, is there anything you want to tell our listeners about uh, your keynote uh, next week and the conference?
0: Well, that, what I just said was basically what my keynote is about. Um, uh, that you know we have had this divide between the way look at, we look at global education and um, diversity, equity, and inclusion slash social justice, um, which has been a more domestic project. Um, In American higher education and 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 I think we have to think about the missed opportunity of what happens when we're not making that connection uh, between the local and the global and when we have international students on our campuses that are not engaged in those conversations when we have American students who are not having a global equity uh, conversation, but really a domestic equity conversation and then a global conversation without an equity lens um, sending people, students abroad um, without a, 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 an equity lens, and kind of being able to interpret the inequity that they're seeing out in the world, um, and, and then even as it relates to now, this all the the, the vast degree of remote learning that's happening and the inequity in there. So we have big challenges, and um, and so I plan to to, to share that with Encore um, and and in a number of different professional spaces over the next year.
2: Mm, well, I'm so I'm so grateful for your voice. I'm <laughs> grateful for your friendship. I learn a lot from you every time we, we have a conversation. <laughs> um, but I am just so grateful for your leadership in this space and for the courage that you have shown in terms of speaking out and in working with faculty, with boards of trustees, with leaders at all levels, Um, it's important work. And I'm grateful that you're out there doing the work. So thank you again for your time. And uh, I wish you all the best uh, at the conference next
0: week. Thank you. And thank you for all you do uh, as an amazing leader in higher ed.
2: Lisa Moore Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with Dr. Lenore Rodicio. As Executive Vice President and Provost of our country's largest community college, Miami Dade College, Dr. Rodicio is a transformational leader. She has led numerous initiatives that have moved the dime for students and faculty on her campus and is an expert in the work being done to improve student access and achievement for underprepared students. Subscribe now so you don't miss out on my conversation with this inspirational leader and to hear Dr. Odisio's insights about how to reimagine higher education for the benefit of all students. For now, thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong.